One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, something Christmassy, almost like I planned it. Uh, talking to the children's author, Shabelle Pounder, about her brand new novel, Tinsel, The Girls Who Invented Christmas. Uh, it shows that why everything you think you might know about Father Christmas actually might not be true at all. Uh, it's good fun, this one. We talk about how she tries to encapsulate that magic Christmassiness uh, in words. It's so important to get the tone, the atmosphere, and the mood right in Christmassy stuff, isn't it? We talk about how Chevelle does it. Also, about what writing newspaper columns and editorial taught her about fiction. And you can hear how she thinks about writing for children. Maybe it's just the way I write is best geared towards kids. But I think I just try to keep it at a level that means that they absorb and enjoy it, but also that... I would enjoy it too. You know, I sort of hope that uh, parents and adults that read my books enjoy it as well. So I think I do think about all readers as well as the sort of target readers. There is more on the way with Shabelle Pounder this week in Writer's Routine. Hello, welcome along. My name's Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine. Uh, It's the show where we take a look inside an author's working day to find out how they plan it to get an idea from their head onto the page. Now, before we get properly into it this week, uh, can I ask a little favour of you? If you've not done it already, if you are enjoying the show, if you listen to it near enough every week, um, can you subscribe to us if you've not done that yet? Uh, It makes your life so much easier because it automatically downloads every week. And it's also very useful on our end. It helps other people who need the help of our authors find the help of our authors. Now, um, it only takes two seconds. If you've not done it yet, please do subscribe to Writer's Routine. While you do that, wherever you listen to your podcasts, let me tell you about this week's author with her Writer's Routine. Uh, It's Shabelle Pounder. She is a kid's author. Her debut, Witch Wars, was shortlisted for the Waterstones Children's Book Prize. Her new one, Tinsel, is her fourth book. It's all about Blanche Claus, the woman who possibly invented Christmas all along. Uh, We talk about why she had this idea ages ago, um, but why she couldn't actually write it down and get it published until now, and what needed to happen to make that possible. You can also hear about how she cracks out the first draft of a kid's book in in record time. I mean, thousands and thousands of works in near enough uh, a second, really. 
And we talk about why, after her being a journalist for a paper, she took on a novel writing course um, with, with a friend of this show, actually. Uh, you can hear what she learned from it and whether it was worth it after all. And we get into it, as always, with what Chabelle Pounder sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Um, well, I am currently at my kitchen table. Um, so partly because of COVID, I have a, um, the, our spare room in our flat um, is sort of my office. Uh, but I gave it to my husband just because I thought the transition from, from working in an office all the time to working at home is quite... Um, can be quite extreme so but anyway to be honest I sit here most of the time anyway just because it's in the kitchen so it's really easy to get snacks and cups of tea Um, but it's on my desk there is um, well I've got just various notebooks full of stuff and um, a stack of manuscripts which are all uh, the various stages of tinsel, which actually are sort of stacked up there to be thrown out because um, I'm just a bit superstitious. I don't like to throw out anything <laughs> that I print off to do with a book until it's been published. Um, so I've been meaning to get rid of those. Um, and then I have a stack of envelopes because um, when you're a children's author, you get really adorable uh, fan mail. Um, sometimes it's not even about your book. It'll just be two pages about a party that they had that they want to tell you about. It's really sweet. Um, and then, yeah, then I guess the rest of the stuff is, I mean, there's shelves with, I like to pick up sort of old cookbooks. So I have one from the 1920s that's about um, sort of sweets and bonbons and then a 1970s one that is amazing and it's just called cooking with flowers and it's just all flower recipes and then yeah I'm looking outside I can see outside into the garden which is nice and I have a cat who um, is very fun and she's got uh, she's best friends with the other neighborhood cat and he's called Bruiser so he comes to collect her every morning and they hang out together, which is quite sweet. I don't think they understand that they're meant to be territorial. So, <laughs> All that it's lockdown, come on. Um, Bruiser's a proper good cat name as well. Uh, yeah, he's really he's really delicate looking. It's quite funny. Um, and he has this little sort of splodge of a moustache on his, on his face. He's very cute. I'm, I'm interested in you throwing away manuscripts. I know that you, 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 you know, you said you were superstitious and kind of scared. But how attached are you to the different stages that your books have, have taken, and how kind of willing are you to to chuck those away? I know that I would like want to keep it, just everything to do with it for no reason. I'm never going to look at it. It's just it would feel weird for me to throw these things away. Yeah, I mean, I throw it away out of pretty much necessity because I think otherwise uh, my whole house would just be full of manuscripts but and just things and I might print off uh the same stage maybe three or four times because I like working with paper which is actually bad I've sort of changed to reading it more on an iPad now which I've actually found better um but I do I do make notes a lot of the time if I've if I'm making a change I can normally see my way of thinking when I look at the manuscript whereas on a digital edition I'll know that the change has been made but there won't be any of the thinking around it so I like to keep it for a while um, but then after that I think the book is printed so um, there's not much you can <laughs> you can change so it almost feels more cathartic to sort of get rid of it and know that that's 
that's the end of the process, really. Although I did um, go to seven stories fairly recently when I did the um, a project with Eva Ibbotson's estate, and they have lots of manuscripts from authors. I mean, authors that are really famous, um, not anyone like me, um, but they keep like all the old manuscripts because I guess they used to work so much more on paper and yeah, it's just these huge archives of all these incredible materials. So I do feel bad throwing it out in case one day someone, I don't know why, would be like, I'd love to see the third draft of Tinsel by Spellbinder. But um, but yeah, maybe I should keep something. I don't know. <laughs> Being in a kitchen as well, how have you, I mean, you've got your, your envelopes there, you've got your work stuff, but it's still, it's, it's, a, it's a place where, you know, your whole household can kind of call their own. What have you done to make it special for you and a place that allows you to be creative? Um, nothing much, really. I mean, I really just have my laptop and then all the, the bits and pieces that I haven't tidied away. Um, I never really... Um, I always think if I'm doing good work, then I'll feel so lost in it that I can work anywhere. Um, and when it's not good, I need everything to be really tidy. And I, so I, I just, I don't know. I think I've just got really used to sort of disappearing into my laptop a little bit that I don't really take in the surroundings too much. Um, and it's just become about the fact that I don't have to walk far to get a cup of tea, just laziness really. And also to make nice lunches. I remember when I went freelance, um, and the, became a full-time writer one of my friends said oh you'll you'll love it you couldn't use it's such a good excuse to make yourself ridiculous lunches um use all the condiments so um yeah I have a note on my phone from that conversation I had with her and it, and it just says truffle oil expensive for oil stuff not expensive for truffley stuff so I don't know <laughs> it's there uh, yeah it should be the new advertising slogan I think um yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh well so what's on the screen then so are you working on a laptop what software do you use and things can get quite geeky do you have any staunch font opinions as well (laughs) I love the font opinions um so I work on a MacBook Air um and I just work in Microsoft Word um and I might have you know I research stuff on the internet I try to turn the internet off when I'm when I'm writing just so I get like a lot of people, I think, get distracted by Twitter and things like that. Um, and in terms of font, I someone to, uh, told me recently, you know, if you change the font, you pick up mistakes more easily, and that's fascinating. But I usually write in uh, Georgia, I think, in eleven point font. I don't know why. Georgia, um, okay, yeah. I'm going to write in Georgia. Georgia seems to be quite a common author font. I've had a few mm. um, people say this. Uh, oh, it's very fancy. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's a bit more characterful than your usual Calibri. I enjoy yeah, that. Yeah, I think it's friendly. It's less intimidating. It's <laughs> very sweet. Um, well, listen, Shabelle, talk about your, your day then. The show is Writer's Routine. Tell me about the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are writing. And how does it look? Um, well, it depends on what stage I'm at, I think, in the writing. When I'm, I, I do tend to try and sit at my desk and write all day which I think is maybe um you know when you are allowed a flexible routine I'm trying to get better at sort of taking advantage of that and and 
you know, using more time for research during the day and things. But what I normally do is I tend to sit at my desk for a lot of the day um, and just write really and try. I usually try and um, my books are normally because they're for kids. They're about they range probably between about 30,000 and 45,000 words. So fairly short in terms of I know that adult books are probably go go from like 60,000 upwards. So um so I if I do a couple of thousand words a day I can usually get a first draft done in about a month and for some reason I just feel more comfortable even if it's rubbish which it always is um just having something then to work with and so I try and edit I try and write during the day and then I'll do things like well not in a COVID year but in a normal year I'd go and see comedy shows or see friends or try to get out as much as possible and I think that's important for being creative. And then when I'm editing, I become a recluse and I don't see anyone (laughs) for months and I just sit and try and make the first draft better. How does how do those 2000 words a day, how easy are they coming out? Can you kind of write like Billio, you know, your fingers are a whirlwind on the on the keyboard or is it sometimes quite a struggle to get anything down? Yeah, I mean, I say 2000 words a day. But some days you'll write a hundred words that you're pleased with, and sometimes you know four thousand words. It just it depends on the day. But I just try and aim for something, but also not be um, hard on myself if I if I don't get that word count because sometimes I think the best work comes you know on a one hundred word day. So um, it just it just depends really. I think the main thing is to just have something to aim for, but also not to um, beat yourself up if you if you don't hit targets because they're just sort of very vague targets of okay well if I did this every day I'd have the draft done by this point um, sort of like how everyone does the November month for writing and um, for me I think it works better because I could I could spend months just stressing about a chapter and trying to make it perfect whereas I think you really need to get to the end and then go back before you actually even know completely what the book is I suppose um so getting to the end is is quite important to me if you don't uh if that limit that 2000 word isn't set in stone how do you know when you are done for the day um it's usually when I just well when it's the end of the day um and also I think just if you know you're just got to the point where you just can't really think (laughs) straight or think of anything anything good I remember reading once that you can be creative for four hours I think it was um Jennifer Saunders who said that that you can be creative for only four hours a day and um I can see that um that's probably true but then I suppose within the writing I do a lot of um work around it as well and you also have to reply to emails and things like that so um or if you're um doing events at the time a big part of being a children's author is you do uh school events and things so you go into schools a lot so I might have a school event first thing in the morning and then I'll sit down to write so I guess it just it just depends I usually just once it hits about seven o'clock I think okay well that's about enough I don't I don't write well in the evenings at all 
I mean, sometimes I think I do, but then I read it back and I think, no, you shouldn't write in the evenings. I'd say if you were to total up the actual writing rather than the sort of sitting and thinking, but the actual sitting and properly putting words down and, you know, crafting it, then yeah, probably about four hours a day, I would say. I've definitely got it in my head that I can only be creative for four hours a day now. So that um, that's in my mind. So I think if I did four hours, I think, oh, no, that's the time up now. Um, but it's actually quite nice to not put too much pressure on yourself, I think. Let's talk about those words then. If you if you said that you write about 35,000 for a, for, a, for a kid's book um, and those, they have to be particular words because you're writing for such a specific audience that how thought through is each of those words because you've not got as many of them in an adult book to kind of tell your story how much do you think about each word that is there and making sure it's the right word that will help your readers understand the story that you're trying to tell them um well I think yeah I think it's just writing in a way that is accessible to kids I think that's important for kids books and um I suppose my books start um tinsel's probably slightly slightly older although a seven-year-old could read it but they're they're aimed at sort of seven plus and they're quite newly independent readers so you want it to be you know accessible in that way but I I tend to just I don't know I think I, I often think if I wrote an adult book which you know I have no no intention of doing I would probably write it in a really similar way I'm not sure I don't tend to I suppose um change I mean I wouldn't put in a really complicated word necessarily or you know concepts that that kids wouldn't yet understand but I don't I don't really think too much about the fact that I'm writing for children I just try and make it funny and entertaining and especially in the first draft I think when I've tried writing for kids I've always struggled with tone and I've read a lot of people that try to write for kids and and have also struggled with tone and have managed to get published I know that you don't you say that you don't um think about the words but and you just try to make it funny but when you first started writing for kids how easy was it for you to to find the right voice to pitch it correctly to not be too like intelligent and to not be too pandering um I don't know I think I've always written it um the way I write it now, which I don't know, maybe I'm just very, uh, sort of maybe it's just the way I write is best geared towards kids. But I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I just try to keep it, um, you know, at a level that um, I think means that they absorb and enjoy it, but also, um, yeah, that, that, I would enjoy it too you know I sort of hope that uh, parents and adults that read my books enjoy it as well so I think I do think about all readers as well as the sort of target readers. You used to write for the FT um, what, 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 what's the difference in those styles of writing um, how much did you have to consciously thought th- think through that's how we did it then this is how I'm going to do it now. Yeah, well, the things that I used to write at the FT were 
very um that's uh a lot of fact stuff <laughs> was all all fact really um and it would be um i wrote a philanthropy column so there'd be these little sections on um charity initiatives or sometimes there would be a profile about an in the, an independent shop they had a section that was called cult shop I think I'm not sure if it's still called that and then I would occasionally do um these interviews that are at the front of the magazine but they would be quite structured questions so it wasn't um like long form uh journalism so it was really um it's very different I think because you're just getting to the heart of okay what's the information that I need to to get across to people here whereas I think and it's obviously all um things that you have to find out um whereas when you're crafting fiction especially kids fiction it's sort of um so I suppose it's the difference between being, say, a detective or an archaeologist or something, finding information and being, I want to say God, but that sounds really grand. But I think it's you're coming at it from a position of, especially because I write fantasy books, you're making everything up. So there's this huge freedom, which in itself can be restrictive because you need to impose laws or just get completely out of control. Um, but I think, it, yeah, it's it's very, very different. Um, when I worked on the Eva Ibbotson book, I wrote a sequel to one of her books, and that was a really interesting process for me because um, she died in 2010, and I've, I'm a huge fan of hers, and it was a follow-up to her book, The Secret of Platform 13, and I was given very much free reign by her estate. But what I wanted to do was be sure that I was taking the characters somewhere where she would want them to go. Um, so that involved lots of research into things that she'd said about the characters or who the characters might have been inspired by. Um, and so in that sense, I think I was using a lot of the sort of journalism skills that I had picked up you know trying to find out information or interview people and figure things out and build up a fictional world that way um, but that's very different to my normal process which just usually involves sitting thinking "Ooh, like what should I do with this world and it can be anything. Uh, so aside from the differences um, and aside from that similarity what did being a journalist what has that taught you about writing and writing for kids as well what has that taught you about actually the way you construct a sentence and put words on a page um I think it's taught me to be concise um because you're dealing with very limited word counts and you know the FT overall has really really high standards so the the training that you get there and the people that you work with are really exacting and so I learned a lot I think it also toughened me up to, to criticism and things so I'm very good at being edited um but um I think yeah I think it it, it I remember um Catherine Mundell described when talking about the differences between um adult fiction and children's fiction she wrote a book called um why you should read children's books even though you're so old and wise and she described um uh kids fiction as literary vodka like it's very distilled and you sort of have to impress kids very quickly from the off and I suppose that's very similar to 
um, the kind of work I did at the FT in the sense that it's very distilled um, and precise. But the, the, without wanting to try and guess what your thoughts were here, um, you took on a writing course, didn't you? You did Faber Academy's Writing for Children course. Yeah, I did with um, Anthony McGowan, who um, was on your podcast as well. He was indeed. Yeah, yeah. he was fantastic on it as well. Yeah, he was um, brilliant. So there are clearly, I think, I'm reading into this, that there was a thought there that you thought, okay, I want to write for kids. You know, I, how do I do this? What What did... What did this course teach you about writing for kids? Um, well, all sorts of stuff. Anthony's a, a great teacher. Um, but I think the most important thing was I had always written children's fiction on the side for, for fun. And um, and I sort of, I was as I was working at the FT, I sort of realised that long term, maybe I wouldn't want to be a journalist and I would love to write children's fiction. Um, but I just didn't know you know, it, had, it wasn't even something I had considered before. It was just something I wrote f- for fun. Um, and then we got this little bonus at the FT one year, which is unheard of. Not, um, and uh, and I thought, well, rather than sort of spend it on just nights out and things, maybe I should invest it in something. So I did the Faber course. Um, and I think the main thing that that gave me was just permission to take it seriously and to actually carve out time for writing because um we had homework every week so I I actually had to do it whereas I always think there's something a little bit it feels almost indulgent you know if you have other if you have another job to to dedicate time to writing sometimes you can feel guilty and uh, and I certainly did sort of um or you know or there would be a million and one other things that needed to be done and I I just you know would come home at the end of the night um, and be exhausted and not have time to write so it it gave me sort of permission to take it seriously I suppose and then after that I just you know I'd come home from work every night and I would work on the manuscript until maybe like two three in the morning and then I'd go to bed wake up go to work come home work on the manuscript and I I just kept doing that um until I got an agent so I think it was this the sort of turning point from from you know, thinking, oh, this might be a good idea to to actually, you know, really, really trying to pursue it as a career. Um, although I would say to people, I always say to people, you don't, you don't need to do a writing course, and and often they're they're very expensive, and it's definitely not something I could have afforded at that time if I hadn't have got that little bonus. So, but I, but I also think, you know most authors I know haven't done a writing course so it was useful but but in no means essential there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll get more with Shabelle Pounder in just a sec on the show. Very quickly before that, a little reminder that if you do enjoy these podcasts, if you think they're worth a few quid, a couple of dollars a month, um, you can always do that. You can always help us out. Look, I know it's Christmas time at the end of, of, a, of a long, hard year, but if you can afford to help us out on Patreon, uh, I'd love you to do that. It's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. That's how you can support us. You get thanks, you get merch, you even get a way for your book to sponsor this show. It doesn't need to be a lot. Just uh, just a little bit, a few dollars really helps us. I, I, I think some podcasts, some American big podcasts say the price of a cup of coffee a month. Um, if you're in England, the price of a pint. Not that you can really go out and have many pints at the moment, but still, the price of a pint and a little substantial meal. Uh, every month, that would really help us out. Uh, it would help us bring you these chats with authors as often as we can. To do that, to support the show, head to patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Shabelle Pounder talking about her fourth kids novel. It's Tinsel, The Girls Who Invented Christmas. Uh, In this part, we talk about uh, Blanche Claus, her lead, how she created the character and why believable characters in a magical story really was so important to her. We also talk about what she feels about publishing a book with a much shorter selling window. Christmas books aren't really going to be in the windows of Waterstones uh, come March time, so so we talk about how she feels about that. Uh, and we pick it up talking about the, the very first idea that she had for Tinsel and why it took her a little while to get published. Um, well, this is one that I've had for a while, but it's um, it's one I've been really hoping I'd be allowed to publish, but um, uh, a Christmas book because it's just seasonal. You're really on the shelf only for about three months maximum. So it's a big, I suppose, risk for a publisher because um, it costs the same to produce that book, but then it's for sale for a lot less time. Um, so it wasn't something that I could do as my first book or, you know, my first series or even my second series. I had to build up a bit of a reputation. So I was hoping that it would happen. But it's it's basically the idea came about because um, I've always been fascinated by Mrs. Claus. And I think she's just such an interesting character because we we know everyone knows who she is, but we don't know anything about her, really. You know, we don't even know for certain what her real name is if you if you google it it's like it could be holly or martha or and it seems so strange that we know so much about santa and rudolph and all the others and nothing about her um so i always wanted to tell a story that was really her origin story um and then as i was researching it i realized that she was introduced um in the Victorian era by a cartoonist called Thomas Nast who also made up the other details like the elves and the sleigh and things so 
um, I realized she was a very much a relic of the of of the Victorian era, and it makes so much sense. You know, she's this woman who is known and yet completely unknown in a world that didn't imagine much of women. And I just thought I really want to tell her story, and then it sort of evolved into this alternative Christmas of you know what if a long time ago we got the Santa story wrong, and it weirdly all slotted into place quite quite easily. Um, I feel like she was always there waiting for the story to be told. Talk to me about that evolution then. So when you when when you know that you want to tell the story of Mrs. Claus, and you do some research in it, and you actually think. Although not the whole story is there, we don't really know anything about her. We do know that there are some Victorian origins here. How does it roll? How does it grow into this story where it's it's actually Mrs. Claus who invents Christmas and we've got it wrong? Uh, if, if you can, I know it's hard to do. Um, try and take me on that thought journey from place A to place yeah, B. Yeah, so... Um... It's one that I've been, I've sort of been thinking about it, I think, for about four years. But I think once I figured out that she was, you know, very much a relic of the Victorian era, I started looking at the whole Santa story itself and um, and looking at the idea that, you know, what if there was this girl, Blanche Claus, who we've just assumed is Mrs. Claus? because if you looked up into the sky at night and you were in the Victorian era and you saw a figure flying through the sky on a sleigh pulled by reindeer, you would probably assume it was a man because in, you know, that, that sort of mid 1800s period in, in uh, London, women weren't allowed to be carters, for example, which was a job around the docks, but you weren't, women weren't allowed to drive carts. So to, you know, never see a woman driving a cart and then to see a sleigh being driven through the sky you would never assume that it was a woman so I thought well what if they've just projected all their ideas onto this and sort of their biases I suppose and actually the truth is is something different um so that was where all that came about and then it and then it was just a case of it was very uneasy. It was very easy to unpick. Um, so I looked at, yeah, at Santa and where he came from, little things like tinsel. What What is tinsel really? Um, and finding magical alternatives for things that, that made a lot of sense, uh, weirdly. And and how did you then start to to plot this and to plan this? Uh, before you you started typing away that first sentence how much do you know about a story before you start to write um well this one I knew I wanted to have a message in it about um uh, this idea that that Blanche Claus when we first meet her she's in London living under a bridge and she sort of has no one and she's she's looking at all these um people across the across the river you know on their way uh to to spending christmas with someone and she uh is alone and um and she's sort of you know looks at the scene longingly and i i wanted to have this moment where she sees potential in the world and where this idea that it just takes one day to change everything um and so 
the old woman with the bauble, she hands her this bauble and in it she sees this mysterious snowy world and this giant dancing Christmas tree. And it just shows her that, um, you know, that well, the old woman ma- makes her realise she's not alone in the world. And um, the bauble shows her that adventures are out there waiting for her. And that's the sort of catalyst that kickstarts the story. And from there, she just she just walks into town and you know she meets a friend and and it all snowballs from from this one moment and this one bauble so um i want i wanted that to be the moment i had a sort of um real life moment like that when i was younger and i was being uh bullied at the school that i was at and uh my mum was driving me home and uh i remember it was just a really sort of i was very quiet and shy and um not really liking life at that moment and we we passed an old friend that I had gone to primary school with I guess in England you call it junior junior school I think and uh, she was with another friend and I remember as we passed they just smiled and waved at me and uh, and it was really sort of impacted me hugely because everyone my age at that point that I encountered in a day was was really horrible to me so um, it was this moment and I think my mum noticed and she said you know you could change schools because we hadn't really considered that so I ended up going to that school and those girls you know are still really good friends of mine today they live just along the road from me and I told I told them this recently you know I said I think that you know all the people that I've met and all the adventures that I've been on um, I can almost trace it back to that smile and that wave and they of course think I'm being a lunatic but um, but I genuinely think there are these moments and little kindnesses that that really do change the course of people's lives and um, so that was how I wanted it to start and I knew that 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 was how I would do that bit and then Eggnog who's the giant enchanted Christmas tree in the bauble he um he was just an idea that I had because I thought that would be amazing (laughs) and then it all just kind of comes together like that but in pieces I suppose well Blanche Claus I wanted her to be just a character that we would you know really believe could have achieved all of this so she ends up she finds a you can't put in too many spoilers in case anyone reads it but she she finds a horse and builds a cart and you know she always she always has always wanted her own horse and cart because she believes that um everyone with the horse and cart has somewhere to go and so she builds this cart and she becomes you know the best carter in London but she has to disguise herself as a boy because girls aren't allowed to be carters at that point in time and um so I think she is just um, you know, incredibly resourceful. She also has this chimney trick where she can climb up chimneys and things so that all the pieces show that she would be the perfect person throughout the book to, um, you know, to be this Santa figure that we know. Um, and what's re- what I find really interesting is um, I introduce Santa, you know, Santa when he's, when he's young, he's Blanche's age, um, and we meet him and he's a really lovely very sweet because I didn't want to mess with Santa and make him something else um uh, because he's so you know treasured in all of our 
memories of childhood. So he's this lovely, lovely guy who's just very sweet, but very nervous. And he doesn't really have, you know, the idea of going down chimneys and flying through the sky. The Santa in my book would would hate that, you know, he would, would be his nightmare. And uh, but what's so funny is as soon as Santa gets introduced, um, people then sort of assume like, oh, and he'll, you know, he'll take over. So even though Blanche is sort of set up to be this Santa figure, you know, it's all there, the the horse and the cart and how skilled she is and the chimney and, you know, she gets this red suit, you know, it's, it, it all comes together like that. But still there's these moments when um, kids and, and adults expect Santa to, to take over. And I think that's just so interesting that we, even when it's framed that way, we assume, oh, he'll just he'll just get it in the end. One of the most important things when you're writing a Christmas book, more than any other, it's getting that tone and getting that atmosphere right. Christmas is all about it's all about magic. How did you how did you capture that? Capture that essence of, of magic that with just words um, on a page? Oh, I'm not sure to be honest. I, I tend to um, just make lots of jokes and hope that they that they land well and make it seem festive. But um, uh, the magic that the elves have, for example, is um, they have this ceremony every year called Snocus Pocus, where they burrow inside snowmen and they get sort of charged up with elf magic for the year. Um, and so things like that, um, I think, just adding snow really really makes something festive um and uh yeah I don't know just trying to think of all the things that you you love about Christmas that sort of that sort of dark Christmas light that in the evenings and things and trees and all the windows um I was writing it during a heat wave in the summer so it was it was really hard to imagine it um I was watching YouTube videos of Christmas and watching all sorts of Christmas related things and listening to Christmas music in my garden in a heat wave so um I hope I've captured Christmas um I should have probably timed it so I could write it at Christmas time it would have made more sense you spoke earlier on about how your publishers at first were, were slightly reticent to you if, if you wanted it to be your first book reticent to kind of put this on the shelves when it's only going to be relevant for a month or a couple of months do you care about that as a writer um I I mean I don't but it, at some it's just a matter of if they'll publish it or not so I don't think I, I don't think they would have published it as my first book I mean they might have it wasn't something that I pitched them but I just knew that a Christmas book is a is a hard sell for a debut um, and we had Witch Wars, which was a lot, you know, that was written and fully formed. So it made sense to go with that. Um, but yeah, I think I think it is one of these things that they um, they would they would consider that as maybe a risky strategy. So so while it doesn't matter to me as an author, I think it, it just might be something that wouldn't be possible, really. Yeah, I was I was just wondering how. Um... Yeah, how how you feel about a, a book, you know, maybe only being only being available to readers, readers only oh. kind of finding it relevant a couple of months of the year. Oh yeah, um, I don't know. Well, the, yeah, because this is my first my first time of having that really short selling window, um, 
and yeah it's quite scary because you have to sort of um achieve things in a much shorter time frame um but at the same time I think for me Tinsel was always just a really special book that I've always wanted to write so I'm I'm really glad it's out there and I think the one thing about um Christmas books that's really good is I think if people like it it comes back year on year so that's a good thing um so hopefully it'll be around next year as well we'll have to wait and see and lastly, you said that no one really knew the name of, 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 of Mrs. Claus as it was then. Now yours is Santa Claus. Um, wh- why Blanche? Um, I just really like the name. And it also, I think, means white, like snow. And she has ice white hair. So I thought it was quite fitting. <laughs> And that is it for Chabelle Pounder this week. Uh, you can get a copy of Tinsel, The Girls Who Invented Christmas. If you think you know someone, uh, son, daughter, nephew, niece, any kid that might like this book, grab it for them. I feel they'll really enjoy it. It's proper magical at this time of the year. You can get a link for it over at um, writersroutine.com uh, and it's in the episode notes wherever you're listening as well. Uh, now next week we're chatting to the immensely creative Ross Sutherland. He writes plays, poems, scripts, and he's got an incredible new podcast series out as well, which I think you will really love. It's a little bit different from the authors that we usually have on the show, but a change is as good as a rest. Uh, And I think there will be a lot in there that will really be useful to you. So make sure you stick around. Make sure you subscribe. Support us if you can on Patreon. Give us a follow on Twitter. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. uh, And we will see you next week with Ross Sutherland on Writer's Routine. Bye. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 